Uh, we're starting a brand new teaching series today. And as we do, I want to tell you a little bit about my background in, uh, in ministry. I, I've spent 15 years as a pastor. And uh, here's, the, here's the cool thing about being a pastor. Um, I, I can tell some stories. I can tell some stories of the best of times and the worst of times and the most awkward of times. Um, and, and, and what I do, um, I, I, I sometimes am, am called upon to be with people at the, the best of moments of their life when they're getting married and walking through counseling or being able to officiate their wedding or when they, they tell me after weeks and months and years of praying to, um, to find a mate or to get married or to whatever it is that they, they, they send me a note and tell me about the good news. I've been in situations where I've been invited to come into some of the worst of times when somebody loses a loved one and um, a lot, lots of hurt and lots of questions around that. And then there are some times where it's just awkward. There's some awkward things that happen as, as a pastor that, well, I'll just give you an example. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, when I was at uh, the church that I was on staff at at Abundant Life, me and, and the other youth pastor were in our office, and our office had kind of a glass wall front, and there was a, a women's Bible study that was happening in the building that we were in. And this, uh, this lady came in, she was kind of near retirement age, somewhere around in there, but not quite. Um, she was still working kind of part-time. She came in, and I just kind of noticed she was, you know, she was moving in such a way that it just seemed like she maybe wasn't okay. And I kind of waved and, you know, like, does she want me to come say hello? That's a bad thing about having a glass wall, you know, like you feel obligated to look up even though you're in the middle of something. But then sometimes they feel obligated to look up even though they don't really want to talk to the pastor, kind of one of those things. And uh, so anyway, she went in and then she came back around and came back. And I said, uh, I said, hey, are you okay? And she said, she goes, no, I'm not. I I'm really in a lot of hurt. Can you, can you pray for me? I said, I said, sure. She goes, no, 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 I, I want to I do what James says. Can you anoint me with oil and pray for healing? And I go, well, I'd be happy to. I don't have any oil with me right now, but I can certainly pray for you. And she says, okay, please do. And she kind of came over and, and kind of put her hand on my desk like this. It was down like that. And so I got up from around my desk and I came around to, to put my hand on, on her shoulder. It was my left hand. And as I was reaching for her shoulder, she I kid you not, she grabbed my hand and... And I'm like... And like the world's strongest man grip grabbed a hold of it and turned it. And the other pastor who was in the room, he, he like, he just like, not doing anything. <laughs> so you know what I did? Like, I'm gonna have a witness about what's about to happen. Blake, get on over here. And so I, I, I'm trying to pray, you know, and, and be serious because she's in pain, you know, and trying to move my fingers away from, you know, the backside. And as I'm praying, here's what you gotta know about youth pastors. Youth pastors never miss an opportunity to jack around. <laughs> and so as I'm praying, Blake takes his hand and puts it on the small of my back. <laughs> and y'all ain't gonna be able to see this from the back row, but I, it goes something like this. I'm praying, Blake. Dear Jesus, please be with. Please be. And he's tickling the small of my back. 
Listen, I could tell stories for days about the awkward stuff that happens when you're a pastor. And I wanna talk about this because I think it brings to light one of the things that as a pastor that I see is some interesting highs and lows. I'm in a lot of situations, um, some of them really good, some of them really hard, some of them really awkward, where over and over and over again, um, somebody inevitably will walk into a room and say, who's the minister here? Sometimes that happens when I'm in family settings. I don't know if you were a pastor, then you would know that never could there ever be a family gathering where a blessing is over the meal and you are not the one that's praying for it. And so when we get together as a family, I start doing this now. Like for the longest time, it was like, okay, Jernigan, would you bless the meal? And I'm like, sure, you know. But now I just play games with it. When we're getting ready to gather and it comes that time, who's gonna bless the meal? Like I'll just... Or I'll make something up that my kids did and I will yell at one of them just to see if somebody else will step up and pray. My family's very patient. And then once I'm done fake yelling, they'll go, Jernigan, would you bless the meal? You see, there's a lot of situations that I'm in where, where, where somebody with a good intention, they're, they're, they're in a situation and, and with, with all of the best intentions, what they're looking for is a holy person to kind of stand in the gap between them and God. And so when they ask the question, who's the minister here, it it creates kind of a sadness for me. Not a sadness because I don't like being a pastor. I love being a pastor. Jessica asked me this question just last week. Like if you were to reimagine your life doing anything anywhere, what would it be? And I said, you know, honestly, like I'm not trying to play games. It was like, I don't know how to answer that question. I can't imagine being anywhere else, doing anything else, because I'm not good at anything else. And the, the jury's still out whether or not I'm any good at what I'm doing now. So like, I'd rather just keep, keep kind of stumbling my way through what I'm doing now than try to figure something else out somewhere else. But it creates a little bit of sadness for me because, because I believe that there are a lot of Christians that are living without an understanding of the doors of opportunity that God has opened to them. Doors of opportunity that he has created for them, invited for them to walk into and experience some of the most amazing encounters of the presence of God in their life. Because when someone asks who's the minister here, inevitably, in almost every situation I've ever been in, every Christian in the room immediately turns away and looks at me. So we're starting a brand new teaching series this week called Who's the Minister Here? And my goal is to help you see that, yes, there are some really good things that Jesus does in our lives. He, he moves us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. He makes it so that we don't just have to, buy, you know, we don't go to hell, but we can experience heaven. But that's just the beginning of the incredible things that Jesus wants to do in us, that Jesus wants to do through us. And my goal is to help us see in this series that, that God has, God wants to take you to a new level. Matter of fact, the title of my message today, and I'm gonna need some help with this, The title of the message today is, You've Been Promoted. Can you turn and tell somebody you've been promoted? You've been promoted. Now at work, when you've been promoted, you usually know about it. Usually. Usually your boss will call you in, have a conversation. They'll tell you, hey, thanks for doing this, this, and this. You're doing a great job. We want to give you a new role in the company or in the business or whatever. And so what happens is, is they will tell you about the new responsibilities and, and whether or not you're getting a bump in pay. And usually you end the conversation, you walk out with a very clear understanding that something has changed, something is different. My responsibilities are different. My approach has to be different. Why? Because I've been promoted. And I believe 
believe that there's a lot of Christians who live the majority of their lives never realizing that they've been promoted. And I want to help unpack this and I want to work through this because the reality of it is and my aim and my chief goal is to help you see is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been promoted. You are no longer just a, you know, just a, a sinner saved by grace. That is true, but you're no longer your past. You're no longer where you were. You're no longer connected to the things that you were doing. And you are now, you've now been promoted and given a new title as minister. That's going to be a little awkward for some. Some of you are like, what? Some of you can go, yeah, I get that. I've heard preaching on this before. And some of you are like, yeah, I've heard about it, but I don't really know what to do about it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a minister? Well, if someone wants to walk into the door and come and find you and ask you the question, hey, who's the minister here? By and large, who's everybody going to point to? Me. Jessica. Thank you. Maybe some of you would point to Jess. Maybe some of you point to Chris or Brian or, uh, or Emily or, or maybe Dana, you know, the people that are on our church staff and go, well, the ministers here are here, 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 and here. But you know that Jesus actually and the Bible actually paints a very different picture for us. The truth is, is because a lot of the way that some of us have grown up, our depiction or understanding of what a minister is, who a minister is, um, is heavily influenced by the things that we have seen um, from, from the Catholic Church. And this, I'm not dogging the Catholic Church in any way, um, but anytime you see something in the movies or anything like that, if there's ever a minister portrayed, it's usually not somebody wearing this. Usually it's somebody wearing all black with a button-up shirt with a white thing right here, to which I'm just thankful that God's not called me to wear that. Um, but our understanding is often shaped by that. And, and you don't have to be overly familiar with the Catholic Church to see kind of how they operate, that they, they operate around this central idea that there are these holy men that are set apart and called by God to do holy special things. Um, they wear different clothes for different scenarios and there's different rankings from you know, priests to bishops to cardinals to popes, uh, all, the way, all the way up through that. And, and what happens is, is there's an understanding that they have a special and unique access to God that, that regularly people don't have. And so because of that, they set things up where you go to confessional and you confess your sin to the priest because you don't have access to confess to God directly because you're not a holy person. And then the priest will take your confessional and tell you, you need to say this many Hail Marys or, or whatever, and I absolve you of your sin. And then the priest will then go and, and confess your sins on your behalf to God. And that's, that's part of the central tenet of kind of how they operate. And the reality of it is, is there's a lot of similarities between that system and what we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the religious system for the Jews centered around this, this place called the tabernacle or the temple. And around this, the, the tabernacle, which was a tent, it was portable and the temple was a building and it was permanent. There was an outer court and an outer gate. And basically what happened was, is the children of Israel were prescribed by God a very elaborate system of worship and rituals and sacrifices. And so they were called at different times for different reasons to bring different things into uh, the courtyard where they would interact with a priest and the priest would take their sacrifice. They would make the sacrifice and depending on which sacrifice it was, they would either do it in the courtyard or they would take it into the tabernacle or the temple. Now, any Jew could walk into, as long as you were, you know, there, there was a couple stipulations, as long as you weren't unclean or anything like that, pretty much any Jew could walk into the outer court. 
But only a hand-selected group of very special people called priests were able to handle the sacrifices, make the sacrifices, or to go into the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And so what would happen is, is that, that, that these, these priests served as kind of this in-between between God and the Jewish people. And so who are these priests? Well, scripture tells us, um, and, I, and I'll, just, I'll just tell you this ahead of time. Um, this is one of those messages where if you'll notice your handout, I didn't give you many blanks to fill out because I don't really know, I don't know what's most important for you. So I'm just gonna say class is in session. Okay, class, are we ready? Four of you, great. Class is in session because here we go. Who are the priests? Exodus 28 tells us, we hear about this for the first time in Exodus 28. When God tells Moses, take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as a priest. All right, so God identifies, he's establishing the system of worship. He tells Moses, hey, Moses, make Aaron my priest. A couple chapters later in Exodus 40, we learn a little bit more. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons. So now he's saying it's not just Aaron, but it's his sons. And, 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 and he's gonna provide some exclusivity to this in just a second. But notice what it says. Bring them into the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. So it's a select group of people that in order for them to do their very special job, they have to go through a process of cleansing and washing. Notice what it says next. And you shall put on holy garments on Aaron. So now there's special clothes that they have to wear and then anoint him and consecrate him. That word consecrate means to kind of set him apart and set him aside from everybody else that he may minister to me as a priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with the tunics or the other special priest clothes. And you shall anoint them as you anointed their father and they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So what's happening here? God is identifying that the very select hand-picked group of people will be Aaron and his sons. And the only people who will ever be able to be priests in this system of worship will be Aaron's family lineage. And once you have identified the select group of people, they've got to go through a special washing, got to wear special clothes, they got to go through special things. These were the only ones who could go into the tabernacle. They could go into the tent of meeting, then go into the temple and, and intercede for the children of Israel and God. What's more is that beyond inside the tabernacle or inside the temple, there were two rooms. There was, there was the holy place, which is pretty much any priest could come into. But then on the other side of a very thick curtain was this place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And perhaps you're familiar with it because you grew up in church or read the Bible, or maybe you watched Indiana Jones. I don't know. But the Ark of the Covenant was this thing that represented the presence of God. And the idea in the system of worship was basically built on this idea that God is holy and humans are not. So because God is so holy, because God is so offended by sin, he will not allow just anybody to come in and have access to him. The only person allowed to have access to him once a year on the day of atonement was the high priest. He was El Jefe of the priests. And he would go in, he would go through this special washing. He would wear special clothes. They would have bells sewn into the hem of his garment. And he would go in, listen, if this isn't job security, I don't know what is. Dude would go in after they tied an, a rope to his ankle. 
Here's why. Because God was so serious about how holy he was and how he would not be in the presence of sin. If the high priest walked into the holy of holies where the presence of God was and he hadn't done everything exactly right, exactly perfect, boom, graveyard dead. It's an odd thing to amen, but you know, I love you, Mike Heater. And so what would happen is, is the other, you know, the, the JV priests, they would be kind of in the other room, like listening. Did y'all hear the bell stop jingling? No, it's still going. And if, the, if they heard like a, and no more jingle, it was time to pull. And they would pull his dead body out. And then I don't know how that conversation went. Like who's, <laughs> nose goes. And this was a system of worship that God established. God was serious about people understanding how altogether different he was. He was serious about people understanding the weight of sin. Because of that, there was a time where there was a select group of people that had to do a very special set of things in order to be able to have special access. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he changed all of that. Scripture tells us that the veil was torn in the temple when Jesus died. And what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to kind of run through some verses here and you're just going to have to write them down and go back and, and read them a little bit later. We're going to run through some verses. I'm going to try to connect some dots in scripture to help us understand big picture this idea of who's the minister here. Ephesians, are you with me? Let's go. Ephesians chapter two, he said this, and he, I'm sorry, and you, he made alive. So he's saying, Jesus made you alive who were dead and trespasses and sins. So what that means is, is that before Jesus, scripture paints this picture that faith is not just a crutch. It's worse than that. We don't just need a crutch. We need a whole new lifeblood. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but Jesus and our faith in him makes us alive. Verse two, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, saying that, that the devil of hell, this is a, a, a moniker for him, the prince of the power of the air, basically it means that he has some access to try to get, get people to continue to do bad things. And they don't do bad things because they're bad people. They do bad things because they were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And all we know how to do from the time that we're born is to do spiritually poor things. Scripture goes on. He says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves with the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. In other words, he's saying, everybody at one point was just like this dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses, physically alive, but spiritually dead, incapable of growth, incapable of the change, incapable of finding any type of lasting hope or anything that has any staying power. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So when you put your faith in Jesus for salvation, it's not just a, a feel-good moment where, woohoo, the monkey's off my back and I feel really good and light and I maybe even cry a little bit. Like those are, those are innate responses to something that is shifted on the inside of us because in the moment that we place our faith in Christ, we move from being dead to now having a spiritual heartbeat. Verse six, 
And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is who we were before Christ. This is what Jesus does. He makes us alive and then he has a special place reserved for us where we can sit with him in heaven. Romans chapter eight goes on and says, for as many as are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. This is significant. Because now what we're seeing is, is that God doesn't just change our status. He changes our identity. We are now sons and daughters of God. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again, of fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whom we cry out. What this means is, is that once you've trusted in Christ, you don't have the bondage of the fear, of the shame, of the condemnation, of the guilt, of the inability to be able to move out of the state of rigor mortis because I'm so frozen and stuck. That's all I know how to do, that Christ changes all of that, gives us new life, gives us new new breath gives us a heartbeat, a spiritual life so that we can begin to follow him and change and become more like him. And not only this, that he allows us to be called sons and daughters of God. How? Because he adopts us as his own. And this is significant. The end of this, we often blaze over, if you've read this before, about whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is why this is significant because it's not an adoption where we have to call him by his formal name. It's not an adoption where we call him stepdad or adopted dad or, 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 or whatever title is. No, 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 no. The, the Hebrew phrasing of this would be the equivalent of when, you're, when your three-year-old comes up to you and says, mommy, daddy, and your heart melts. See, he changes our status. He changes our identity. It gets even better when we go to John chapter one, verse 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, not the privilege, not the opportunity, but the right to be called the children of God. Scripture goes on to talk about the inheritance that God has reserved for those who are his children. Are you following how this works? That we were spiritually dead, but God made us spiritually alive. That wasn't enough. God wanted to not only make us spiritually alive and give us a new hope and a new future, he wanted to give us an opportunity to to rearrange the way that we connect and interact and relate to him. He adopts us into his family. He calls us his children and he gives us the right to be called the children of God with an inheritance in Christ reserved for us in eternity. Colossians chapter one, I love the way this explains it because in Colossians chapter one, we see in in two verses, everything that we've been talking about, we see all bundled up together, this incredible transformation, this transformational transaction that God gives us the opportunity to respond to. Colossians 1, 21 says, and you and me who were once alienated and enemies, you see, it's not just that before Christ we were, we were spiritually dead and capable of doing spiritually alive things. It's not just that we were, a bad, we were born a bad person and so we, can't, we don't really know how to do good things. No, no, no. Scripture says that we were aliens and enemies of God. Listen to me. The reason the Old Testament priests had to go through all of the process and had to make sure that they were qualified and they were, they were prepared so they could present themselves to God is because they were before Christ. And because they were before Christ, they were aliens and enemies of God. And God was saying, you best have your stuff squared away if you're going to come and be in my presence. 
because I don't deal with enemies well. But Colossians 1 goes on to say that you were enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. That's an accounting term, meaning that the ledger was unequal on, on two, it, it didn't equal on either side of the ledger, but Jesus has reconciled the discrepancy of our sin with the blood of his own body. And he stood in our place, he died on the cross, and he made it actionable when he rose from the grave. And then he goes on to say that in his body, verse 22, through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Are you kidding me? We were aliens and enemies spiritually dead. And Christ does this entire work to change the, the narrative, to change our identity, to change our situation. And it's the only story that you will ever find where the hero dies for the villain. This is what Jesus does for us. But what's amazing is, is that that's not where it ends. My heart breaks when I think about those situations. Who's the minister here? And every Christian in the room, whoop, turns and looks at me. Because there is a promotion, an opportunity that Jesus makes available to every single one of his children, an opportunity to go to a new level an opportunity to experience the divine favor and the supernatural power of God in us and through us. That so many Christians either don't know and so they don't step into it or they do know, but for whatever reason, they don't want to step into it. But first Peter makes it clear in first Peter chapter two, verse nine, he says, but you, everyone who has called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but you are a chosen generation. And here it is, a royal priesthood. All of the things that were true and the access and the opportunity that the priests of the Old Testament were able to have by faith in Christ, God has now imputed, God has allowed all of those things to be available to every single believer in Christ. That every follower of Jesus has unique access to God. Every follower of Jesus has divine wisdom. Every follower of Jesus has the opportunity to bless, to encourage, to serve, and to minister to somebody. He goes on to say that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Scholars refer to this as the priesthood of the believers. It's the idea that every believer of Jesus has been promoted into what they, what they know in the Old Testament, the idea of being a priest. What it means is, is that before Jesus, you were, you were handcuffed and you were shackled with no other option than to be what your past said that you were. To be the worst thing that you ever did. 
And when you encounter Jesus, Jesus set you free. And he set you free, not just so that you can sit back and relax and enjoy your life, not just so that you can go do what you want to do. No, 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 no. Jesus set you free so that you can be unleashed to go sing his praises and tell everybody you know about where freedom and victory and hope and change is found in Christ. You're a minister. Peter would use the phrase, you are a priest. When you begin to think about this and you begin to realize this and you begin to understand what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about when it says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. There's that word again, through Jesus Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What that means is, is the work that Jesus did to change your life, to adjust your settings, to change your situation, to uh, 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 rearrange your identity. Jesus now gives us that ministry to help other people be set free and be reconciled to God through Jesus. Verse 19, he says, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed us the word of reconciliation. Basically what that means is, is that God, through Jesus, he has gone about the business of not holding people responsible for the things of their past, but giving them the opportunity to experience all the fullness of joy and, and opportunity that he had as the son of the living God. He has now translated our, the responsibility to pay for the stuff that we've done to now through him and his death having already paid for those things for us to be able to bask in the reward of the inheritance as a follower of Jesus and to take part in the incredible story that he has been writing for thousands of years to change the world. Empires have risen and fallen. Dictators have come and gone but the church of Jesus Christ has still remained. Why? Because God has made it a habit of not, not just finding the best and the brightest, and there are best and brightest, and God uses them. But the story of the Bible is God continually using common, everyday, ordinary, unimpressive, unqualified people to advance the greatest movement that the history of man has ever known. He used fishermen, accountants, physicians. He used slaves, prostitutes, and homeless people. He used the wealthy and the poor. He even used children carry about the ministry of reconciliation by living their life, singing the praises of their God who set them free. Here's what we have to understand. What qualifies someone to be a minister is not their degree. What qualifies someone to be a minister is not their pedigree. There are a lot of pastors and a lot of church movements that would do well to remember this. That ultimately, what qualifies somebody is the story of how Jesus has changed their life. That's it. 
So when 1 Corinthians goes along and he says that now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know what he's saying? He's saying God is begging the world through your life, through my life, please be reconciled to me through Christ. Look at their life and look at what I can do in them. If I did it in them, I can do it in you. In this series, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you how God advances his kingdom and how he grows his church. Oftentimes, not through the impressive and the qualified, but the unimpressive and the unqualified. What I want to help you see is that God's kingdom and his church doesn't advance just when there's good music and good preaching. There's roles for that. God advances his church when normal everyday people say yes to him and take advantage of the opportunity. Jesus, you set me free. Who can I tell about the good news? My aim and my hope and my goal for this series is that you, if you claim Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, that you would see that in every situation, in every space, in front of anybody, when there is somebody who needs a minister and they ask, who is the minister here? My goal is to help you see that you have everything you need by God to say, that's me. I'm the minister here. You don't have to have the pastor title to be able to do that. You see, here's the deal. Through this series, I'm gonna show you that God has anointed you to be a minister. I'm gonna show you that God has appointed you a time, a place, and a people to minister to. I'm gonna show you that God has prescribed for you a rhythm and a pace to live your life by so that you can be effective not only in the short term, but in the long term. And so that you don't burn out by the circumstances of every day, but that you can continue to live capable, confident, equipped, and prepared as a minister. And I'm gonna show you ultimately that God has not only ordained you, but God has given you the permission to go be a minister. Why? Because in Christ, you are a minister. Which means you've got a role to play. Turn to the person to your right and say, I've got a role to play. You can talk, that's okay, you can talk. Now turn to the other person who was obviously your plan B (laughs) and say, you may be my plan B, but you're not God's. I love the awkward laughter. (laughs) I want to close today by explaining why. Why are we doing this? As your pastor, why am I talking about this? Why am I unpacking all of this? Let me tell you, there's two reasons. Number one, it matters for each and every one of us who have been made new in Christ to recognize and step into the call that God has placed in our life to be a minister. Because Jesus on earth 
defied conventional wisdom. He confounded the wise. He invited people who thought they had nothing to offer because the world continually overlooked them for their past, their profession, something that their parents did. And he said, I'd be willing to change your life. And if your life's been changed by me, then you don't need anything else to qualify you to be a minister. Here's the second reason why we're diving into this. From the earliest pages of scripture, we see that God has laid out kind of this four-step journey that God wants every single person to go on with him. The journey is that he wants people to, we've organized our entire church around this. He's always wanted people to discover life was truly found in him, not in anything else. He's always wanted people to be able to discover belonging and a sense of community because in the sense of community, you begin to have the the interactions that allow us to be healed and set free from the things of our past. God has always designed and desired for people to take the third step that they would begin to realize that they were created for a purpose and you could discover that purpose, that you can know that your life has meaning that you would never again have to pillow your head at night and wonder, did it matter any of the things that I did today? God has always wanted you to be able to know that there is, you were created for a reason, for a purpose, to make a difference. And all of your gifts and your, your talents and the things that you're drawn to and your little idiosyncrasies that your family makes fun of you for, like all of those are intentional on purpose for a purpose so that you could eventually get to the fourth step where you begin making a difference. Where you don't see that your life is to be a mom or a dad, a teacher, an accountant, a construction worker, a doctor, an educator, purpose isn't to drive for Uber or to be a good grandparent or to be a good student. Those are all good things. But God has always wanted you to see how you can make a difference on this world. Where the things that you say, the things that you do, the things that you get involved with can matter beyond just the temporary and the situational. This is what God has always wanted. And when we begin to recognize that God has invited us into this ministry of reconciliation, he's invited us to have special access, to have special opportunity, to have special connection with him by faith in Jesus, that you don't need somebody else to stand between you and God. Christ himself stands as our mediator and gives us the access to come into the presence of God through prayer, through worship. When you begin to realize that, when you begin to live your life in such a way that you recognize, I am a minister. And the things that I have access and opportunity to do will matter far beyond today and on into eternity long after I'm gone. And Jesus spoke to this in John chapter 15 when he said, by this, 
my father is glorified. That you would bear much fruit. You see, that's what he's talking about, that your life would bear fruit that matters. You've gone to the produce aisle and you've seen the, the bananas that are either way too green or brown. Like, nobody wants that. You pick up an avocado and it's like, is this an avocado or a baseball? I don't know. Nobody wants that fruit. It looks like it's fruit. It looks like it might be okay. All of the stuff is there, but it's not desirable. What, what Jesus is saying here in John 15 is that he wants you to live a life so that your life could bear fruit that is desirable. That you would get to the end of your life and go, I'm glad that this has worked out this way. I see the benefit and the reward. Jesus goes on to say in John 15, verse 11, he says, this, this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You know what he's saying? He said, I want, I want you to recognize that as a follower of me, you're a minister. And it's not because I want something from you. Can I tell you, God doesn't want a thing from you. He sent Jesus to take away your sin, not so that he can be a cosmic killjoy in the sky, but so that he can, he can help you see that he doesn't want something from you. He wants everything for you. That's true of our church, that's true of me, that my desire, my purpose in, in walking through this teaching series, not so that the church can get something from you, but I'm desperate for you to see the things in your life that I've seen in mine when I have faithfully and obediently said, Jesus, I'm a minister. At Price Chopper right now in this moment, I'm a minister. At home with my kids when I've got nothing left, but they need some FaceTime with their daddy, I'm a minister. I'm not just a dad, I'm a minister. Around my community and my cul-de-sac, I'm a minister. What does it look like for me to be a minister? I've said all of these things to you that you may understand that my joy would remain in you. You know what he means? He's saying that my joy would be so constantly present that no external force could remove it or take it away. I've spoken these things to you that your joy may be fulfilled, that your, my joy would be full in you, that you would be content, that you'd be satisfied, that you would be fulfilled. You see, you only get that when you begin to walk in your call to be a minister. And so as we close today, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would lean into this, that you could experience this fulfillment, this joy in your life, that you could see what it means to be a minister and that you could experience God delivering on his promise to fill your cup to the point that it's overflowing and that you would develop the mindset that says anywhere, anytime, with anyone, I am the minister here. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. 
Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.